Today I'm speaking with Yana Gevorgyan, the Secretary Director of the Group on Earth Observations, or GEO. GEO is a unique global network connecting government institutions, academic and research institutions, data providers, businesses, engineers, scientists, and experts to create innovative solutions based on Earth observation. I wanted to have Yana on the podcast to discuss what GEO does and its role in the global EO sector, especially at a time when the importance of EO is growing around the world. It's critical that there is a global authoritative voice for EO, particularly focused on building impact-driven projects through partnerships both between the global public sector and the private sector. In this episode, Yana and I discuss her story, the significance of an organization like GEO, examples of GEO-led projects, the importance of partnerships in EO, and more. Before we get to the episode, a quick note about one of the contributors for the podcast, GeoAwesomeness. GeoAwesomeness is a community-based platform for all things geospatial and Earth observation. I wanted to mention one of their recent initiatives called Earth Observation Hub. Earth Observation Hub, or EO Hub, from GeoAwesomeness is a one-stop shop for all topics related to geospatial data. It's made for policymakers, business leaders, geospatial experts, and enthusiasts to showcase how EO is transforming our world. Built in collaboration with Up42 on EO Startup, EOHub has curated articles, podcasts, webinars, and much more focused on geospatial data. I recommend you check out EOHub at geoassemblance.com slash EO hyphen hub. And now I bring you Jana Gevorgian. Hi, Jana. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hello, Aravind. Pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. And I'm going to ask the same to you. You have a pretty interesting story, I think. So, yeah, what's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? It's funny because I oftentimes find I need to pause for a second or two and actually remember what my story is. Um, Oftentimes I tend to boil my whole story down to the job which I think, as we all know, there is way more to us as individuals than the job. And so I have to remind myself, um, you're not just a geo woman. Um, There is more, there's more to story. And the story is, um, I was born and raised and lived a good part of my life, half of my life in Armenia, uh, where I dreamt of becoming a ballerina. Uh, That was my plan at the age of six or so Um, and um, my first plan got shattered because ballet was pretty serious business in Soviet Union and uh, after my parents saw me suffer through pain by walking on my tiptoes at home they said look we have to have the talk you're not gonna make it as a ballerina so think of something else and so since then I stopped having a plan and I just kind of followed the little brick road as the Um, bricks sort of appeared in front of me. I hated science in school. Um, I was much better on sort of communication level with people. I love languages. Um, And so I ended up really doing more of that, finding opportunities where I could be interacting with people. And when I found my way to the United States, I uh, uh, got another degree in international uh, politics and then found my way to NOAA as a presidential management fellow, again, science agency, so not very typical sort of landing place for me, but that's where I carved my path uh, by bringing the soft skills, the social, the people skills um, into this otherwise rather technical space and uh, found GEO. That was another brick on the pathway. And 
I've been following that brick road through GEO ever since. So we're talking now since 2009. Um, it's been continuously evolving um, and I've always been sort of looking for the ways that I could bring sort of added value to the conversation and the efforts that were taking place. And I've been lucky in that um, I was able to bring something that was needed, um, that made me needed, and that relationships sort of grew from there. And I'm the luckiest woman because I was offered the job of running the Geo Secretariat, um, which is a pretty, pretty exciting gig. Yeah, no, 100%. I was going to ask you later, like, how did the you know, job happen and, you know, how did you decide to get into it? But before that, I wanted to ask, so, you know, you mentioned your story. So I'm curious to, uh, to understand, you know, what's been your biggest learning coming from, you know, where you, where you came from, and you know, today where you are. What's been the biggest learning from your, from your journey from Armenia to the U.S. and now in Again, it's one of those things that is sort of clear in retrospective because as you're going, through, at least as I was going through the steps, I wasn't exactly stopping to think about, oh, what's my challenge now? How do I address it? Sort of, you know, you take it on as you go along. But really, I think it was as an immigrant, um, you know, I immigrated to the U.S., became naturalized citizen. As an immigrant, I had to be comfortable with the change of culture. Um, University studies were very different <laughs> and adapting to even that college environment, the way the lectures were being done, there was no lecturing. We did lectures in Armenia. This, suddenly this was also debate-based kind of stuff. I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of neat. Um, it was, I wasn't too comfortable in the beginning, but then I grew to love it. Um, and then it's being always sort of this new to the system, new to the culture. I think we tend to take a long pause before we venture into asking our first question. Um, you know, am I going to come across as uh, ignorant, stupid? And that fortunately, I was able to conquer that fear in myself pretty quickly. Especially when I heard the questions that were being asked in the room from people who were not new. And I thought, hmm, if those are the questions asked, mine is a good one. And then I think the really important thing was to have people who would say to me, that was a great question, or that was a great comment, that was a great contribution, because to somebody who's new to the culture, who's somebody who's new to the system, to organization, that validation means quite a bit. And um, obviously the more I advanced, the less I needed it. But that was really quite important. I wouldn't say they were all mentors who did that, but that just that little thing from colleagues here and there to recognize that and say those words out loud, that really mattered quite a bit. Yeah, 100%. I can you know agree with you because I'm an immigrant myself. And, but yeah, I can completely relate to that. It's, uh, it's important to have that. And I'm glad that we have uh, that validation quite a lot from the community in, uh, in our observation. All right, so I wanted to... Just quickly ask about your NOAA experience. So what were you doing at NOAA and what was your biggest milestone or, you know, something that you were very proud of because, you know, you were there for quite a while, right? Yes. Um, like I admitted from the beginning, I wasn't always great in heart sciences. So it's going to take me a second to do the math. But yes, I started in 2006, actually, as a presidential management 
fellow, so it was, uh, what, 15 years at NOAA, effectively. Look, I always wanted to do something with people. I always wanted to do something multicultural. Um, and so when I received my degree from the American University in International Politics, I thought I wanted to do environmental policy. Um, but it was after 9-11 and um, the, at the job fair, the PMF job fair, there weren't really too many jobs in development sector, but there was a lot in sort of nuclear non-proliferation, kind of, you know, things to do with security, international and national. And, and there was this one woman at the fair, Kate Wunderlich, maybe she'll hear this podcast one day, uh, and she'll know that I credit her with why I ended up at NOAA. She was at the time in the Office of Marine and Aviation Operations of NOAA. It's the office where also the NOAA Corps is, the seventh uh, military service of the United States government. And Kate talked to me about this office of OMAO, which has nothing really to do with international, but she talked about it from the perspective of someone who understood me in the way that made it like the most natural place to land at NOAA because there were no other NOAA places. And so I landed in this office and I was a program analyst and I was supposed to be analyzing the requirements of the various scientific programs for aircraft and ship time. But I knew that as soon as I had an opportunity to uh, make a run for something else that sounded more like me, I was going to do that. And that opportunity opened up in another part of NOAA, which then became my home for a long time. And that was already um, connected to GEO, because at that time, GEO was already in existence. And the woman by the name of Helen Wood, who I do credit with why I am now in GEO, um, took me on and gave me pretty much the space to create um, sort of a conversation within the agency, bringing people together from different parts of NOAA to talk about the importance of GEO and the system of systems that it was set out to develop at the time. And it was a truly rewarding experience because I went in front of people I didn't know. I connected people who were in the same organization they didn't know each other. It got me working with the head of NOAA at the time, Vice Admiral Lautenbacher. I had the freedom to create the narrative, to create the story, to create the outline of the events. Um, thank you, Helen, if you're going to hear this someday, for giving me that space to be creative and to feel like I owned it. And that was another important thing. And that was it really. From there, for me, it was sealed. I knew I wanted to stick with this program. It's Now that I think about it, it's not very uh, modern. I don't think people spend over 10 days, over 10 years doing a single job anymore. Um, but I also say I haven't been doing exactly the same thing. Um, so I've continuously evolved my portfolio, but you know, Geo grew and I grew with it. Yeah, and that's and I'm here now. All right, so let's get to it then. Let's start with the basics. So there, there might be quite a few people who are listening um, who might not be aware what Geo is. So do you want to first quickly explain um, Geo? Well, also the full form because we have not talked about the full form of Geo for ten minutes. 
so yeah, so what's what's Geo and um, and yeah, and then we'll get into the details. So the story I now tell um, is I take the audience back to 2002, uh, World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg. Um, the result of it was a proclamation, and in the proclamation there was uh, a certain section that talked about sort of environmental information and understanding the environment, and it highlighted the importance of environmental information for sustainable development and actually called out earth observation systems in that text. It also highlighted the importance of providing that information to developing countries. At that time, we we're talking 20 years ago, earth observing systems were largely the remit of the public sector, um, right? The governments and the, these systems were expensive. They were expensive then, they're still expensive now. Um, and the countries realized that if they were really to pursue this mission of making these assets and the information they provide available to uh, developing countries, then there had to be a culture of sharing the observations. But also they knew that these systems were so expensive that no one country could really meet all their requirements alone. So then coordinating through sharing of these observations also made sense. And so that's what gave um, rise, that, that's what created the impetus for the first Earth Observation Summit in 2003, which the United States hosted. And some 45 uh, member states gathered and ultimately agreed that they needed an organization, a global partnership, I should say, that would pursue this mission of coordinating the sharing of Earth observations. Um, and they created formally GEO, Group on Earth Observations, two, uh, two years later in 2005. So I, I'll say that we, as this global partnership, uh, created by governments, um, but that also involves non-governmental entities, has always maintained uh, it, as its ethos, make creating parity and equity around the world and making this asset available to everyone. Um, so the first 10 years of GEO, as we grew from 45 member states to, I don't know, 100 and some, we really move the needle on um, the data policy when it comes to publicly funded civil earth observations. And so as everybody knows maybe, or if not, then I'll just say briefly, when the biggest move came from the US in 2007 by opening up the Landsat archive, which then also was followed by Europe um, with Copernicus program and the Sentinel satellite missions, um, data policy also being um, free and open, that forever changed the nature of the game, as of course your listeners know, because um, it created this environment which then really stimulated economic activity and all of this industry that grew because largely these two giants promoted that policy. So um, that was the first 10 years of GEO, really moving the needle and shifting the default on data policy from protectionist to open. Um, and then in 2015, that was a big policy year for Agenda 2030, Paris Agreement, Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. We began to pivot towards extracting insights from that data, creating information tools and services that really answered the questions of several of these policy frameworks. And that's where we got into the space of 
developing this internationally coordinated consensus-based products, which were all based on open data, um, that then become the tools to be implemented by the countries and not just countries within their own environment. So, you know, I can take one, for instance, uh, the first one we developed after Red Plus sort of came about was forest carbon tracking, which now is known as Global Forest Observation Initiative. The best of the best that the scientists in that space came together and created this harmonized, standardized, consensus-based set of methodologies uh, and guidance on how to implement national forest observation um, information system. World Bank's Carbon Fund endorsed that methodology. So then the countries really had the confidence that if they implement this at the national scale, then they will have sort of red plus endorsed, so to speak, um, tools with which to monitor the reduction of their emissions from deforestation desertification. So that represents the kind of the nature and the spirit of our work. It is really creating that science-based, international consensus-based, harmonized, standardized sort of methodologies, which in this world I think is really needed, even more so now than maybe even then, um, because Everyone is concerned with the issues of transparency. Everyone needs something that's really authoritative and they can trust. And when something comes through this kind of international consensus-based process, the countries are more inclined to use that as a foundation for decision-making. Yeah, makes sense. It's, uh, again, like you mentioned, it's more relevant today than it's ever been simply because of, you know, everything that's going on with respect to climate change and the agreements that we need to have the negotiations and you know you need to have an independent authority to, you know, to create a product so so it makes sense I'm, I'm curious so what how is the you know how does the future look like because you know there's quite a lot of uh, things to be figured out for for climate um, you know and, and of course uh, earth observation has a an incredible role to play uh, I think that's that's just um, that's just the fact of the matter but then what is missing is you know like you mentioned, what is the standard? Is, is this the, the product that we should agree on to, to refer to, whether it's for carbon tracking or for droughts or you know crop monitoring, whatever it is. And I know that you have done several projects across different domains, but I'm curious to, to hear from you about how you think this is going to be going forward. You know, that's the question of the day, for sure. Um, especially because in this moment in time, we are so reimagining the next generation geo uh, for next year's ministerial summit where we will be seeking renewal of our mandate. So it, it's very timely. Um, we are looking at this question, especially against the backdrop of all of this, ex mm, I don't want to use the word exploding, has a bad connotation of this massively growing, robust industry that is also coming forward with products, right? And, and that's great, that's terrific. Um, I think uh, what we ought to be paying attention to, and which is why I said what we do is perhaps even more important now than then, when we work, when this public sector sort of science-based kind of research and development was the only game in town, now it's not. And so ensuring that you know companies or investors or even countries, NGOs, 
do not get something that is in fact not good. You know, if they want to make investments with confidence, we need to ensure that the information that they're getting is scientifically robust, that the results actually can be comparable, that an investment here and investment there can be looked at and you're comparing apples with apples. Um, we need to make sure that the information is solid so that um, these investments can also be certified so that the credits, right, there is all this, thank you John Oliver for this, with his clip going viral, that in fact there is that objective information available um, providing that confidence that the investments are being made in the right place at the right time through the right projects. As far as GEO is concerned, I think we are at the inflection point. We've been sort of coming along steadily with the commitment of our governments who have been supporting this mission for 17 years. But we are at this inflection point where I contend we can and we will have a breakthrough. And we absolutely have to scale. And we scale by way of hyper-partnering. Um, we, I don't think there will be anyone who will argue that solving the challenges is no longer just the responsibility of the government. It's also the responsibility of the corporate sector, the INGO sector, the civil society, local communities. And I know everybody speaks about partnerships. But that's basically your job, right, to, to enable that and to facilitate those partnerships because you, you can't just expect two or three or ten parties to just sit in one table and... Absolutely, and abs absolutely. And, you know, it, there used to be, it used to be debated, should people, should GEO really be reaching out to those boots on the ground organizations? You know, should I really care where the data is coming from? And I think yes, in today's environment, yes, because they're not just going to sniff things out. Sure. Our product will go and live on all these fabulous platforms, WRI's Resource Watch, on Living Atlas, Dynamic World, you name it. But still, it takes the global village to save the village from the crisis. It takes all the village residents, I guess what I'm trying to say. And, in, and because it takes all the village residents to save the village, we have to find this new way of working together where we are willing to relax our own rules a little bit so that we can work with those other communities in the village. If we insist that we just have to play by our rigid hardcore rules, well, we all have to play together. So for GEO, I think that is where we are. We need to really sort out how can we partner with this broad variety of players and entities that it will take to accelerate the delivery of this information and into the right hands at the right time without compromising that authoritative trustworthiness, which is, I think, the calling card of GEO, but still do it quickly enough so that we can, in fact, be relevant um, in this space and time. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's also coming at a time when, because when GEO was formed, the, the private sector was largely not there from, a, from an earth observation point of view. But now there are so many, you know, earth observation companies, constellations, and not only launching satellites, but then also working with 
start like data creating new products. Some of them are they're even their own initiatives, um, you know, based on open source data and they're creating new ones. So how do you look at the private sector in today's conversations? I mean, obviously they have a, you know, a seat on the table when, you know, you're conducting these discussions, but, you know, would they overtake? Because part of me feels like that shouldn't happen because, you know, you can't let one company decide what's the global standard for, you know, how carbon tracking is done or, you know, anything that's related to a global standard. You can't let one company dictate that, especially, you know, concerning environmental uh, variables and, and insights. So what's your take on, you know, how the private sector is today and, you know, how it's going? So I realize when we're here in this conversation, we just say private sector, we do mean the EO industry and we're not really talking about the other sectors. Um, I look at I look at the future of the relationship between this multilateral and public sector and that private sector as having its best time still to come. Because I think it's now that we really especially need one another. Um, and especially these multilateral platforms. Look, I mentioned the word trust already several times. If we want, as we did back in 2002, the low and middle income countries, the most vulnerable communities to be open to using this information and products, they need to trust the entities who were part of the creation. And I mean, we all know it, that trust is not easily gained um, and you can't really buy it either. Uh, it has to be earned. And this platform that GEO is, is truly the place where the trust is cultivated because we can show that the private sector is engaging with the academia within the countries, with the countries, with the authoritative organizations to be part of the solution. Um, I do think that the sort of the vertical products that are being created for specific sector applications, that's terrific. That is the role of the private sector. At the moment, I think it's certainly perhaps a, a bit of a luxury, I think, for, for the majority of the world. Um, the, most of the clients for these countries are, I think, are still in the developed uh, world. There is the aspiration of these companies, right, to extend the offerings to the other parts of the world. And they are looking to partnering with the governments um, to help finance um, those programs. And that's great. What we'd love to see is creating more robust programs that last not just two years, but a little bit longer, and really anticipate the full kind of value chain of not just creating the pipeline for providing the data, but working with the academia and the institutions in the countries on the uptake, on creating the workflows where these um, imagery and the data will get used and seeing that through. That being here for the long haul kind of spirit and it's really great to see that we have partners who are who are already approaching this in that way. It's just about creating parity um, on the global scale. Um, there are there's way more need out there. I think the technological development still outpaces the speed of delivery, um, especially to those who need it the most. And I think that is the challenge that we 
the public sector with the multilateral organizations like GEO and the private sector really need to tackle and tackle quickly. How do we catch up to, to meet that need? Makes sense. And do you want to quickly talk about some specific projects that GEO has been involved in? Because I want, to, want the listeners to get a sense of, you know, I think you mentioned one example before, but, you know, do you want to talk about a couple of products that you've created or projects that you've been involved in that has resulted in impact? Because I know of a few, but I want you to kind of talk about a few projects that you've been involved in that so that, you know, people can get a sense of, you know, what you're talking about here from a practical point of view. Yeah, let's take... Um... Let's take on the food security side, because one of our sort of flagships is the global uh, geo-agriculture monitoring initiative, which um, kind of has two sort of delivery durable tracks. One is really working with the agriculture market information system, providing them with monthly crop monitor, which is effect- effectively a subscription service where we provide status of crops, uh, major crops, um, in the major crop producing countries and that information allows for reduction of that uncertainty gap um, and thus the control of sort of price volatility but the other track of it is actually working with countries on implementing early warning systems for crop failure Um, and that work has already played out in a number of places like the case of uganda is one where um, that early warning that there was going to be crop failure and there was not going to be the harvest that was expected allowed the government of Uganda to um, activate in a timely fashion the global disaster um, financing facility and get the payout at the right time so that they could in fact provide the assistance to the population um, and save in uh, what would have been then providing sort of reactionary kind of um, response to uh, food insecurity. Um, so that is a really terrific program that's been funded by NASA for quite some time through NASA Harvest um, with the leadership of University of Maryland. Um, the German government, the UK government have been uh, sponsors and donors of this as well. Um, the other story I really love to tell was um, the case of um, Israel, where there are these two really um, seasons where there's either drought, very arid uh, season, or there could be severe flooding events. An authority in Israel, um, aware of a potential flood risk, wanted to take sort of the preventative action, but because of the lack of local data sharing, really had to seek out another information source. And that's when they came to uh, a service that's being provided by GeoGlow's Global Water Sustainability Service, which is a partnership between the US, ECMWF, uh, with partners from World Bank and ESRI, runs on ECMWF's operational um, system. And they were able to get 14-day forecast, um, and in fact, they shared the information across the administrative borders, which was quite unusual. But the reason they did that, because they trusted this service to be neutral and supplied by authoritative agencies. And so for them, it was a no-brainer to actually take that on um, and also save lives and property in the end. There are a couple that we're currently putting in the pipeline, and I'm really excited about 
those as well. Um, they have to do with sort of creating sort of an integrated um, ecosystem kind of mapping monitoring product that would really put forests and other types of ecosystem together because right now there is a scattered um, landscape of various ecosystem monitoring products. We have forests, we have mangroves, we have wetlands, um, but we are reacting to the need to have something that actually integrates these so you could in fact see forests on top of um, wetlands and peatlands, etc. Um, that still requires um, an effort to do that sort of integration. Um, and I'm hoping that we can take that off the ground pretty soon. Um, and there are several others in the space of sort of public health and um, urban resilience. They're, they're very interesting projects. And what I was thinking was, you know, the, the examples that you gave and the projects that you talked about, it's very unusual to hear in the observation industry. They usually go into the details of, you know, what satellite was used, what was the resolution, and, you know, what was the revisit, what algorithm was used. And I think the story you gave was the story that the earth observation industry should be talking about, especially on the commercial side, but also on the institutional side, is, you know, you focus on a problem and then you solve it with earth observation data and, you know, GEO was facilitating that, that process. And that's how, you know, earth observation should be having an impact on the world. But today we are in a phase where we're talking about, or the focus of the, you know, if you're talking about a case study, even from a commercial company, the focus is on the technology, the sensor, the algorithm, rather than the impact itself. So I really enjoyed uh, listening to those case studies because it's unusual to have these kind of case studies, which are, you know, focused on the impact, but not on the technology itself. So, you yeah, know, something to learn for, uh, for the industry, I suppose. All right, so I wanted to ask you about the, yeah, the way the space industry is, because one of the things I was thinking about, you know, we talked about the need for having, um, you know, a global authority, and I always feel like the space industry is usually an industry where, I guess, a dozen or so countries decide what's the future. But in our observation, we cannot let that happen because, you know, we're kind of looking at the whole environment of the planet. So I was wondering to, you know, move on to talking about inclusiveness and, you know, diversity and kind of working with everybody, which, you know, we talk about it a lot, but how do you actually make that happen? Because, you know, you've been part of projects where, you know, you've made that happen. You know, you've not built products only for, uh, as you mentioned earlier, just for the market where, you know, they already have that data. It's about getting it to the hands of people who don't have that data. But how do we make sure that that continues? And yeah, what are we missing today to, to make that happen? We do it by doing it. <laughs> um, by truly by just initiating those conversations, creating those, brokering those relationships and partnerships between, um, well, let's, let's, take, let's take Digital Earth Africa as, as, a, as a case in point, for example, or, you know, the developing Digital Earth Pacific. I mean, that is, that represents exactly, I think, what you were just talking about. It still leverages, I mean, this is a data infrastructure for sure. It's a data infrastructure on a continental scale that was developed on the basis of open data cube technology, um, is leveraging the data that's Landsat data, Sentinel data. So yes, it is from the big countries, but then it's also integrating other data that's available on, from regional and national scale and is developing services that are tailored to 
the needs of that continent, whether they're using African Union's Agenda 2063 as the drivers or the country's requirements and priorities as the drivers, and then connecting the use of this service to national level sort of data infrastructures where they do exist. Um, you know, and this is something that actually developed relatively quickly. Um, and what, what made it possible was a successful use case, which was in Australia. Um, so there was already sort of an experience and a blueprint. And then willing donors who financed the initial phase of this. But then really creating that governance space that was inclusive of the players on the continent who then drove the agenda, both from the technical perspective, but also from the governance perspective. And just recently, the Earth Africa became sort of fully Africa managed now with the new um, director of Digital Earth Africa. Um, so I think that does show that, again, we leverage that which the developed world has been providing and is providing. We leverage some funding that comes from large philanthropies or other big country donors. But we absolutely do it with the engagement of those who will be using the services, who get to send the set the priorities. I just don't think it's, I, I think it would be naive to say, oh, we, we can do this all without the help of the more developed sort of countries. Um, Maybe, but it will probably take a lot longer. So again, I think it's just partnering is what it takes. And the more we have of these um, known successful cases, and if we can replicate them in other places, um, then that's great. It tends to not get to that simple because the context everywhere is rather different. And so if something works in the African context, that exact, um, model may not work elsewhere um, but but at least you know that you can adapt it in certain ways so then it all boils down to finding those few champions um, from the local level regional level donor in um, sector etc yeah 100 digital earth africa is you know a, an initiative that i've been you know very very interested in because yeah it's, it's kind of you know made it happen as opposed to just writing papers or, you know, just posting on social media. It's, it's, you know, now we have a platform where countries around Africa, all countries, I, I would imagine, right, all countries have access to analysis-ready data that from, from you know, powered by Earth observation, of course, but then they have access to that data that, um, you know, they can use internally for, you know, whatever use case they may be. And it's also leading to, you know, local capacity building um, in terms of, you know, helping people uh, understand that this is an industry and, they have a future in, so that's um, that's a brilliant initiative. Cool. A um, few wrap-up questions. Um, how do you see the relationship between, you know, companies, uh, let's say the private sector, the earth observation industry, and GEO, and, you know, several other organizations? You know, you have the OGC, you have, you know, the, of course, the, the public agencies, the ESAs, and UMITSATs, and ECMWFs, and NOAAs of the world. So what... You know, of course, you, you're probably going to talk about partnerships and working together, but who should kind of start that? Because it, it feels like, you know, the 
the public sector would probably don't want to, you know, stop what the private sector is trying to do, or and the private sector would probably want to just focus on what they are trying to do. So, you know, someone needs to kind of make that happen. Is that what Geo's responsibility is going forward? I'm just going to venture out and say yes. Yes, um, all the, it's so funny, all the organizations you mentioned, they're actually somehow members of GEO. Well, lowercase m, because we reserve the capital uh, M for member states, but otherwise they're all part of GEO. Uh, and so I like to say that in some ways, GEO is like this gym where so many, we have so many subscribers, but very few use their membership card. Um, and I'm here to say, it's time for you to pull out your geo membership card because cool things are happening. And um, I have really enjoyed having this opportunity coming into this job to be interfacing with um, the counterparts with, within OGC, with Nadine, and within UNGGIM, and within um, other organizations, GPSDD, Global Partnership on Sustainable Development Data, um, really understanding what their thinking is, or what their priorities are, and finding out that their priorities map so nicely to our priorities because we want to accelerate and scale the delivery of the services to whether it's countries or whoever those um, boots on the ground are. And there is real great appetite to piggyback on our respective networks and channels and institutional interfaces. There is no time. Nobody has the time to be creating brand new things. If we don't figure out how to collaborate and yes, how to share the space, we're not gonna move the needle as fast as we have to. And so I was using that village analogy. I'm convinced we have to be willing to share the space. And if it means, taking a little bit less of something so that the little bit more goes to somebody else who can complete the delivery of the service and then we can all get inspired by the results then that must be done um, you know my concerns are not so much with the relationship with eo industry and our sort of public sector my concerns are in how we optimize all of these instruments and interfaces and mechanism into which countries and governments have been pouring money whether it's through the un system or or sort of fund uh, funding of ngos there is so much capital out there going into different projects i feel like we have a moral responsibility to leverage those and optimize those investments to give those who are in the receive mode more of what they need so that the donors also get greater return from those investments. That's my dream, honestly, when it comes to multilateralism, that is really my dream that we all begin to take more responsibility in how we are using um, all of that funding um, and recognize that sharing the space, which may also mean sharing resources a bit, um, is critical because that's what's going to give us more of those results and impact stories that we all love to hear. And, uh, you know, that also kind of helps uh, with the advocacy for our own work. So, Right, makes sense. Last question. Um, what worries you about the state of 
Earth observation today and what can be improved on? Well, my response probably will not surprise you because it's, it will not have anything to do with technology. Well, actually, maybe it will. No, it's still not a technological thing. You know, I often find myself wanting to take a break from looking at LinkedIn or Twitter because so often I see another new thing being advertised. Oh, we created this. Isn't this great? I'm sure it is. <laughs> But I'm, and that's why I said earlier, this technological development somehow is still not really keeping up with the pace of need, right? Um, I do worry sometimes that maybe certain results are getting pushed out and are being promoted and advertised before their fit for purposeness has been truly validated, the quality has been validated. And I think, again, this is a matter of responsibility and accountability that needs to be taken. Um, not to oversell and overpromote something as the solution when it may in fact not be the solution. So perhaps a little bit of that humility. Um, but it's truly the, the human aspect that it doesn't worry me necessarily. I think we as humans will get it, we'll get it right. It's just, uh, it's just we need to be willing to modernize our ways, our practices, our thinking a little bit faster. Be willing to let go of the older ways, even the current ways. Be willing to take on criticism. Um, be willing to hear people say, hmm, what you're doing is just not quite what we need. And then be willing to pivot and shift and change ways. It's harder for governmental processes um, you know I think private sector definitely has to or else they just won't be there a couple years later um, so it's 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 definitely a little harder for us um, I'm, I'm reflecting on this because that's where we are in this moment in time like I was saying earlier we are sort of imagining the next generation geo and uh, well, it's exciting all right, sounds good. Um, anything else that we missed before we end? Anything else that you want to plug, or you know, obviously, you know, we can, I'm going to link the website. People can check out, you know, your projects and everything you talked about. Anything else that you want to plug? I think I would say, as travel is beginning to resume and uh, this community is starting to travel and other parts of the global village too, I would love to see as many. Um, participants as possible in Accra, Ghana this fall, just the week before COP27, because we will be having the Geo Week there, which is a massive showcase of what Earth Observation does, and not just from the public sector side, but also what the partnerships uh, create together. Digital Earth Africa will be on full display. Um, we will be really talking and meeting with um, the players from Africa. Uh, we will be uh, we will have youth track, industry track. Uh, we'll be promoting uh, participation of youth in um, the work of Geo and more broadly Earth observation sector. So everybody is welcome. Would love to see you there. It's fantastic culture, colorful, beautiful. Um, and I think that's where I'll end. All right, that sounds good. I'll leave a link to GeoWeek in the show notes, and yeah, folks can check it out and register. 
All right, brilliant. Thanks, Yana. Thanks for being on the podcast. This was a uh, you know, very insightful and fun discussion. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Arvind. Hey, this is Arvind again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Tarawad Space Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Terrawatch on Substack. That is terrawatch.substack.com, where I attempt to decode the recent developments in space tech and its impact on Earth. Thanks again, and hope to see you for the next episode.